You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, in your schools, what's it like when you get new teachers at your school? That's interesting. I honestly can't think of the last person, last new person in my department. Oh, wait, no, I do. I don't know. I kind of waved at her. We didn't really have too much interaction. We just we didn't overlap, and so there really wasn't much time to uh, to discuss really anything. I know she taught before. Since then, I have found out where she taught before, which did inform some of our conversations. Uh, well, in, it helped me understand some of our conversations better. I'm a terrible so colleague, not, I guess is what I'm saying. There, I try. So there was not a transformative impact on your school when you when you got a teacher. It also sounds like your school has very little turnover of teachers. Is that right? In uh, particularly in the social studies department, yeah, people don't don't turn over that often. Uh, and just so we know, like my colleague uh, is wonderful. I'm actually meeting with her tomorrow. Like we're you know <laughs> we're we're good colleagues. I, I am nice. People who want a job working with Michael Milton, it's very tough. They open very, very, they're very few and far between. I'm, I'm um, nervous think, with new people because I don't, you know, <laughs> it's it's new. I haven't you know, learned about them. They haven't learned about me. And yeah. I always think it's interesting the ways that new teachers come into schools or departments and, and whether they um, are expected to learn the culture of that school or whether the school is really open to growing and learning from them. And, you know, the same thing happens for us at universities because we get new students all the time in our doctoral programs and our graduate programs who all are in schools doing a lot of work and have a lot to teach us. I'm not always sure we're set up in a way where we learn enough from them. Mm -hmm. We have have our courses set up. We have our curriculum set up. And it's like, but we don't have our spaces set up. And, And I think sometimes we we try to do it, but it's like the structure is not built to learn from these wise educators that are coming in to get their doctorate, but I've been in the classroom, have been in schools doing a lot of hard work. And so I feel like that's something that's like, we really need to rethink because we need to understand how to make educational change. And it doesn't happen by, you know, just talking with the people next to us always. That's interesting. It's kind of like the whole concept of like, with education, are you just like filling people's heads with knowledge? Are these new people mm-hmm. who are coming in? Are we just filling their heads with like the way we do stuff, but not actually taking out like what they've what they've gotten out of? There's probably a much more eloquent way to say that. I just don't have it. <laughs> right. It's like the professor lectures on inquiry learning, right? Oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The lecture on yeah, yeah. A, well, I I think we have a lot to learn from educators who've been working in schools recently, and and that's that's something we've got to figure out. But also, I think our schools have a lot of thinking to do about what it looks like in the fall. Um, Not only are we facing a pandemic, Mm -hmm. but I think the the recent murder of George Floyd, um, the killing of Breonna Taylor, and and so many other black people recently has really returned to talk about what does justice look like in schools, too. So I think we're a lot of educators, and it's a lot of white educators, I think in particular, are starting to ask questions about um, police in schools, 
the the role of disproportionate and harmful disciplinary practices and a lot of other things like that. So I don't know. I've been thinking that we need to have a lot more conversations that are critical and ask these questions on this podcast, too. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm glad that we are uh, we are starting to do that more uh, specifically uh, with the two guests that we have on today. Yeah. So we're I'm very fortunate because these are two of our doctoral students at my university and um, I've gotten a little bit of a chance to get to know them, but I'm excited to learn some more from them tonight. So we'd like to welcome Danelle Adeniji and Marquita Foster. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for having us. Yes. Can each of you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds in education? Hello, my name is Marquita Foster. I am a doctoral candidate right now at the University of North Texas. I am also a teaching fellow in the department. And I'm working on my dissertation and I'm trying something that I feel like is, it's not really revolutionary, but it's something I haven't read much about is using blackness itself as a disruptive pedagogy when you're looking at the social and emotional needs of black children versus looking at blackness in terms of using instruction. Cause I think that's been pushed such a, a great deal. And so I just want to make sure as far as my research, there's a balance that blackness can be used for the whole child, in a sense, not just their academic needs, but their social emotional needs. Before I became a doctoral candidate or a doctoral student, I was uh, an English teacher, secondary level. I was an instructional coach. What made the greatest impact on me was being an elementary um, assistant principal in an urban district where I saw a lot of what you just introduced, that that uh, disproportionate uh, disciplinary violence on very, very small children. And so that's what, I guess, influenced my research in that area of looking at urban elementary education and the use of uh, disciplinary violence on very, very young children. My name is Danella Deneji. I taught elementary in a, for six years. While I was there, I realized that, like, morally and ethically, I couldn't continue on because our black and brown babies were just being used as data and test scores. And yes, you know, Danelle, you can make waves in the classroom. You're advocating for your students. You're making sure that they're getting what they need. Even though this curriculum isn't working for them, it's not meeting them. What else can you do to significantly change this and interrupt this system? So I had to make a hard decision. That's when I became a doctoral student at the University of North Texas. I just completed my first year. This work is phenomenal. I am focusing, well, my research focuses on pre-service Black queer teachers, and how they use their intersectional identities to impact the curriculum, and also researching children's literature, LGBTQ plus children's literature, and how can we use it to introduce students to these concepts, these topics, while they're young, instead of allowing them to grow up and become problematic. So I'm excited to be here and discuss teacher prep and these things with you today. Can you tell us what you mean for our listeners who, who don't know what intersectional identities are? Yes. In 1989, Kimberly Crenshaw turned a coin intersectional identities. So it's where race, gender, class, uh, access, ability, status, all those things intersect. For example, as like I'm a black queer woman 
And I don't, I don't pick apart my identity just to fit in one role. I don't just advocate for my blackness one day and then my queerness one day. They all come together at the intersections to have an impact on what we're doing. So as we talked about in the intro, we're going to discuss a little bit about, you know, the ways that we need to advocate and address and confront how Black Lives Matter and should matter in schools. And there's a lot of different <laughs> aspects of this topic. So we're going to talk about a few different ones. So Marquita, can we start with you and talk a little bit about some of the things you think we need to give more attention to in education? Particularly for me, as I said, I was, I'm working on my uh, dissertation now. I've been uh, in contact with five very extraordinary Black educators. And what my concern is, and, and you know, I'm experiencing COVID-19 as they're experiencing it as well, but they're actually in the field with children. And so their anxiety became my anxiety, in a sense. And so what my concern is, is, you know, is going into the fall is, of course, we're concerned about how children are going to adjust to these, these new requirements. But my concern is for those teachers who carry that burden even without there being a pandemic going on, how do you educate children in these times? And I, I don't think we're paying enough attention to the, the teacher's emotional needs and concerns. I think that we're in uncharted waters, obviously, but uh, Texas right now doesn't seem to really have a plan for mm-hmm. <laughs> how school is going to look and and there are like five different options, it seems like, is going on. So I, I think if we're putting the honest on the teachers to be still carry on with life as normal and teach, we, we need to give them a, a, a clearer path and we need to make sure they're supported because what happens when they're not normally supported, a lot of their frustration is turned on to the children. And that mm-hmm. factors into my work, too. Under normal circumstances, when teachers have no voice, they take out their frustration on children. Uh, when all these standards are pushed down, all these requirements are pushed down, teachers are overwhelmed already. And so it becomes, you know, frustration is taken out on the children. So now we're adding a pandemic to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I don't I don't know if lawmakers or our politicians are really thinking about the emotional health of our teachers who are who need to feel well enough and supported enough and safe enough to educate our children. That's my concern going into the fall. It seems like this pandemic is a metaphor for a lot of the failures in education. You know, I mean, I I know one thing, you're you're right. I think a lot of teachers have anxiety because they're not hearing they're not there's not leadership that's comforting them that we are gonna actually do the best. We get these kind of platitudes about, you know, we're gonna put students and teachers safe safety first. We get this at the university level too, um, which which oftentimes is not the primary motive for why we're going back to the classroom. And I know I've felt anxiety about it. I know uh, my wife, who's an elementary librarian in our, uh, you know, in our local school district, she feels a lot of anxiety. Um, and then I know also that other people must feel more anxiety because in particularly in black and brown communities, I mean, the, the impacts of COVID-19 are disproportionate. And that, again, is layered on. We had an end of the school year where we know that the loss of, of kind of oper- learning opportunities was even widened more 
because of the differential technology that students had access to, what their schools were able to get out to them. And so I just like it. Yeah, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of anxiety on everything. And and it's compounded, like you're saying, by these standardized testing structures that put so much pressure on schools that are, quote unquote, perceived as failing. Right. They're always top down measures. So, I I mean, what do we do, I guess, is, is a question. What can educators do? What do administrators do? Well, a part of my, my, my research is also I'm looking at uh, classroom teachers, I'm looking at administrators and counselors, because I wanted to uh, see the, I guess you could say, the level. Teachers only see so much because they're confined to the classroom. And then you have counselors who see probably more, they're kind of in the middle, obviously, and then you have the administrators who see everything. <laughs> so what I, I, what I, uh, have at least one of the administrators in my uh, research is she is a true advocate for her teachers. And so she is basically standing in the line of fire saying, this is what is not going to happen on my campus. This is not what I'm going to allow to happen to my teachers because she knows that if the teachers aren't well, then they can't do their, their best job. So I think it, the, the, the pressure is going to be on administrators reaching out, feeling out their staff, their faculty and staff, and then being that voice for them saying, you know, we, we have to, we have to protect our teachers. I mean, I, I, I do understand, like, you know, we, we, we have a section of society that doesn't believe the coronavirus is real. <laughs> and then we have a, another section, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, who's overwhelmed with it. And so you're going to have that amongst your teachers. And so you're going to have that. And I just feel like our, our administrators really, have to be advocates right now. They really do. I'll also add that the, on the Venn diagram of people who don't believe coronavirus is real and the Venn diagram of people who don't believe structural racism is real, um, there's a lot of overlap. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, of course, urban areas, uh, you know, black and brown people are hit the hardest. And actually where I'm doing my research, one of the first deaths in this area was in that school district. And so I know that that is still in their mind. I know that they really were impacted by that student's death. And so I'm hoping to see that the way they handle going back to school in the fall is reflective of that that tragedy, that they understand the impact. Because this is, uh, she died, I want to say, maybe a couple of weeks after spring break when schools didn't go back. And so she, you know, was exposed at home. And so I just, like I said, I I really feel like the the one administrator I have in my my study is a model of saying, yes, I I may take a few hits for this, but I'm I'm doing what's best for for my staff by speaking up and making sure that they have what they need to do their job. Did your, um, when you were planning out your, your study, did the coronavirus then impact your plan or was that already in place? It, it certainly impacted my plan. I entered the field, uh, I, I recruited my participants the last week in February. I began my interviews the first week in March 
went on spring break and coronavirus, you know, all the, the shutdowns of the school. And so a lot of the communication I've had with them since then has been via email and Zoom. And I start every uh, conversation with them with, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And um, I, like I said, I felt their anxiety because in this particular district, these teachers were expected to teach throughout the week. And they were still having their evaluations while they were online. The principals would come into their, their online courses and evaluate their teaching. <laughs> and so they, they felt a lot of that stress right there on top of how do I make sure I engage 150 kids online throughout the week and check mm-hmm. assignments and all that. So. Yes, I, it was right at the beginning. And so I felt very uh, protective of, of the knowledge that they were presenting to me because they didn't have to do it. They did not have to continue with my dissertation, but they were, I think it was also maybe very helpful for them or maybe a, a release for them that they got to talk about their experiences and that somebody was listening and concerned about what was going on with them. So Marquita, it seems like you are looking at these issues from a different lens than I think a lot of administrators sometimes look at them. I hear a lot of administrators refer to the data as if it's gospel and came down from the heavens to explain what's happening in our schools. Um, and I, I often like to ask them, what is the, the, the theory or the beliefs behind the data? Like what data are we collecting? Why? What are the measures for it? And oftentimes a lot of the, the data sometimes falls apart really quickly once we look at it very deeply. But you don't seem to be focusing on that. What What is your kind of lens or view for looking at these problems in education? For me, I guess because, I, you know, I always consider my own experience, uh, obviously, uh, when I'm looking at educators. And what I always felt was, those areas where I think we, we, we just, we miss them because we're focused so much on the data. Prime example, when I became an administrator, one day I was called a mule, M-U-L-E, a mule. And of course, I'm like, why am I a mule? Yeah. And <laughs> The lady meant no disrespect, I can tell you, because the look on her face was like, well, um, it was, oh, you're the worker. You, 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 as an administrator, you're the assistant principal. You do all the hard work. So the principal is free to do X, Y, Z. Well, we just think about that idea that you're calling the assistant principal the mule because the principal then is free <laughs> to run the building the way he or she wants to. Well, that's how I look at teachers. We pile so much on teachers that we never stop to think that how we treat our teachers is turned on how they treat the student. And 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 at the end of the day, you know, that data is supposed to go with that student, but look at what teachers have to do to get it out of them. And so I'd rather focus mm-hmm. on nurturing you know, not top down, but from the the bottom up, we have to, you know, we have to nurture the children. We have to make sure that they understand that that data is not necessarily who you are. And that we have to give teachers the 
freedom to look at progress. I mean, we, we, we basically just have a, a number that says teachers must get this score to be successful. Children must get this score to be successful. But where's the human in all of that? They become objectified. Everything is a number, an object, a, a goal. And so my research, uh, even, you know, like I said, I, I always based it on my experience. While I was pretty, I guess, okay teacher, I didn't really have bad scores. I remember how children felt when they didn't succeed. I remember how children, I mean, teachers felt when they didn't succeed. And so for me, it always goes back to you have to nurture the human Mm -hmm. in the midst of obtaining these goals that the school district has set. And so if you don't, if you don't, I think that's where the violence continues and it becomes normal that we have to do these things to get teachers to work and the teachers have to do these things to get kids to work. And it just perpetuates this violence that we become blind to and it becomes normalized. So that's very important to me to bring that to people's attention. This really kind of dovetails into the story that Danelle, you talked about earlier with your, why you left the classroom and why you pursued your doctoral studies. Do you mind talking a little bit about that and a little about where you are, uh, where you're going with your studies? Yes. Before I do that, to follow up with with what Marquita said, my wife, she's an elementary teacher. And so, you know, in March, everything transitioned to online. And the way she she teaches, she's once again very nurturing, very other mothering, you know, making sure that they have the tools, the the emotional tools in that they need. And like the school, the dis- the school she works for, they want them to do small district. You need to be here, have these packets, have these worksheets, make videos, do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, like Marquita was talking about. And my wife, she was like, yeah, but what do these students need? I'm trying to do the best for them because she had one student, fifth grade, who had to go work with his dad at a construction site. So this student wasn't able to log on to the computer, wasn't able to do any of the Zoom meetings, wasn't able to meet up or do anything. But my wife kept reaching out to that student, but the administration would ding my wife for it. How come he's not here? Why are you not getting numbers? What are they doing? Why are you not contacting parents? What are you doing? And you know, she would take that hit from the administration just to make sure her students are okay though, so that they wouldn't have to feel that extra pressure because we're already in a pandemic. They already have to go to work with their parents why do you want me to pressure them to do this schoolwork that doesn't matter? That's where my issues came in with while I was teaching. Because um, I told people I taught in the hood, I uh, love them kids. The kids wasn't ever the issue. It was always adults. Because a lot of times we forget that they're kids. And, you know, Texas loves the star test. And, you know, we have our testing seasons. So when it will come to these testing seasons, okay, make sure you have them in our master group. You know the kids are going to do well, okay? Then make your bubble kids. That's where we need to focus. Okay, your low kids, make sure you send them to the bilingual side. And let, no, send your master kids to the bilingual side. Let them help them. Let them get the scores high. The low kids, I mean, just make sure they have the skills that they need to highlight, circle, make a barely passing grade. Do you realize as I'm saying all this, it's problematic because where are we focusing on the kids being human? Yes, they love, okay, they love school, they love to learn, blase, blase, but now you're working them like mules. 
Make sure you get the grades that I need. Make sure, you know, you have this score. The district I worked for, they had tests every three weeks. Three-week tests, then six weeks. You didn't make your grades in three weeks? What are you doing? What's the matter with you? Like berating kids. And then if I wasn't berating them, something's wrong with me. I, I wasn't a good teacher. I'm not getting these scores. I'm just not doing my job because I'm not sitting here, you know, talking down on kids to make them feel worse. Go home to their situations, do worse and come back and repeat that cycle the next day. Like legit, I would get big. I would get dinged for advocating for my kids. I'm like, tell them like, look, this kid is trying just because they're not making it to. And these are the black kids. Just because they're not making the 70s, the 80s, and the mastery level star results that you want, you think that they're not trying? Okay, so Mr. Denigy, take away their recess. You know, tutor them at recess. Tutor them during specials. Tutor them during lunch. Have all this constant just to make sure that they reach a grade level or to, to get a score that doesn't matter. But you know what? I was like, okay. I was like, look, kids, we got to put on this horse and pony show. I'll be real 100 with you. I'll be honest. Because there's going to be people coming here and looking at you. So let's do what we got to do. When they leave, then we can have our we can have our moment. We can decompress. OK, but I promise you, it's just like I said, how they use these kids for data, for numbers. They don't care about them. They will put forth this beautiful show. We care about our black kids. Look at what they're doing. Look how they're playing. Look at how they're excelling. But deep down inside. These districts that put on this show, if it's just all about academics and they're not taking the time to humanize their child or to ask them, how are you doing? What can we do? If they're not taking the time to recognize what the community is dealing with or having buy-in from the community, they don't care. I'd be 100%. They don't care. The kids at my school, they didn't know the principal. Like when she would talk to them, who is that? Why is she talking to us? Why is she talking to me like this? So like you said, it's, it's this top-down effect. The administration puts the pressure on the teachers. And then teachers, we feel like we have this pressure to perform just so we can keep our job. And then we put the pressure on the kids. We're not even talking about the implicit and explicit biases that are built into us. Just the pressure that we have when we walk into the classroom. So I was like, this can't continue. We got to do something else. And I feel like as I, as I hear you both speak about schools, it just reminds us like what, what every critical theorist has been asking us to see is that schools, you know, whether it's uh, Apollo Freire, a Pedagogy of the Press, or Bell Hooks, Teaching to Transgress, or, you know, even James Baldwin, the talk to teachers, I've like been reading these with my graduate students lately. And so much of it, I think, is about how you know, we're asking students to learn things that have no meaning to them and, in fact, are in, within these systems that are going to punish them no matter almost what happens, right? This, this student who is going to work, you know, at a construction site in fifth grade is trying their best to make it, and our school is punishing everyone around them for their life. And it's just you know, I hear so much advice about going back to schools, and I think we're in the same problem we had before that's just being amplified during a crisis, is that our schools are set up wrong. And uh, I, I keep thinking back to this. A lot of critical theorists talk about those in, in positions of power and privilege who, you know, believe in these tests because they do well. You know what I mean? I was in a position in my schools where my kids did well in tests, and that made me, gave me a false belief that I was a great teacher because of it. 
But you know what? I had I was in a situation where the situation was made for me to succeed. I had kids, you know, who could get tutors if they wanted. We had plenty of time. We had resources we that that just no one else had, and they were able to focus on a curriculum that often spoke to who they were in problematic ways, but it spoke to who they were in ways. And so it's just our school systems feel so rigged, I think. And I'm just like worried about how it's going to come out out of this as just amplifying the problem. Imagine the black and brown children who were able to breathe when they were inside those four walls of the school setting when this pandemic happened. Imagine how they felt relieved when they didn't have to go be around this teacher in this system who constantly oppressed them and they could learn at home. Like, I wonder, does anybody consider that when opening back up schools? Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I study, chose to study disruptors. That's what my dissertation is, is those teachers who are well aware that this structure, as you said, Dr. Krupka, it, it is designed for certain teacher to certain people to succeed and certain people to fail. And it's mostly going to be those brown children and teachers who feel the pressure to succeed, unlike, you know, if you're in some other place that because the school district is not designed for people of, uh, of color, black people. It's not designed. None of the policies or practices are designed to, you know, really address our needs. And so I decided to look at people who were disrupting, who knew they had been taught. This is how you treat children. This is how you teach children. And decided that once they got into their classroom, that they were going to do something else. They were, and they were willing to take the hit for it. What I found in my, my interviewing these five people, and like I said, I have a, an administrator, a counselor, and I have teachers, four teachers. Yes. Yeah. I have six people. I think earlier I said five, but, uh, is that they know that the scores have to be they have to get the scores. The counselor knows because counselors don't really get to be counselors much anymore. Sometimes they are test coordinators as well. They realize their role in the whole testing and data collection. Uh, of course, administrators know that they have to guide the ship. But these six people decided that black kids and brown kids needed to be loved first. And so... It's like the old adage, if you, if a kid knows that you care about them, they'll do anything for you. So they know the scores will come. That's not their focus. It's not centered in their classroom. But making that classroom, making that school a place where kids feel wanted for just more than what they can produce. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. One of the, the, the people in my, Study is a principal at an alternative school. Now consider alternative schools are usually very carceral spaces, but it's, it's not designed that way. And so I'm looking at disruptors this whole time because I think we need to understand that the only way to change the school system is that you have to have people who are willing to disrupt it and take whatever hit that follows because at the end of the day, it's the children. It's the children that you have to speak for. And so I'm, I'm just excited to see, you know, the, the kind of work that they do and, and what they'll be able to do when they come back in the fall. But I think when you said, you know, the school system, how it is, you have to have more disruptors. What additional challenges do disruptors face in there when they are, you know, throwing away the paradigm? 
as I was speaking to uh, one teacher, he actually was getting pushback from other teachers around him because he was doing something so different. It was being recognized by kids in those other classes. And so kids in these very uh, oppressive classes or these classes where teachers were, you know, on them so hard about getting scores or, you know, just following the, the classroom management practices, they were <laughs> actually leaving those classrooms like and walking out to go to the other teacher's classroom. And so he got pushed back from his own colleagues that he needed to toe the line like they were because he was making them look bad. One teacher in the, another teacher in the study found that her pushback came from the administrator. Even though her scores were great, it's because she was seen as the one who was, I guess, rebellious. And so you can't have one teacher rebellious because that might influence other teachers to be rebellious. And so that's where she got her pushed back. So there's always somebody who's willing to, of course, to keep the status quo, because just think about it. We teach teachers in you know, teacher prep programs that you have to get all of your kids to do what they need to do so you can teach. Right. <laughs> you have to have management. Well, same thing for administrators. You have to have your teachers all doing what you want them to do because you can't have these these rebels, you can't have these outliers because that influences somebody else. And so what I found, though, with each of them, I had all of them send me letters that students had written to them. And they were these beautiful letters. These kids were, and this was during the pandemic that they felt that these teachers went over and beyond in not just teaching them, but making them feel like somebody cared about whether what was going on in their home. You know, what was what were they feeling like every day when they had to get online and do work? Somebody was paying attention to that. <laughs> it wasn't OK. Yes. Yeah. I'm still going to check on you to make sure you're doing your work so you understand. But it was they cared about the person. And so the pushback came from their own colleagues and administrators and not the children obviously, and not the parents, but it was those people who wanted to, we all have to be doing the same thing. You can't do something differently for me because then that makes me look bad. That's, that's kind of like what they were expressing with me. It sounds like the school systems were systems of oppression that, you know, were able to um, reinforce themselves, right? Like if it's not even all the administrators, but even fellow teachers who were reinstituting these problematic policies. And I've seen, there's been so much focus on, on, you know, policing in school because it's obviously directly related to a lot of protests happening nationally and disproportionate punishment because that's also kind of a related topic. But hearing these topics, I just see such a need for we have to really rethink curriculum instruction and assessment in schools because I see standardized tests as being incredibly violent forms in schools because they don't allow for the types of nurturing you're talking about, right? They they squeeze everything out of schools and reduce students to numbers and reduce people to having to get the numbers. And, and what's left is, you know, these experiences that are harmful, violent, or meaningless to students so often. I tell my pre-service teachers to, in a sense, like Marquita said, be disruptors. I tell them, you know, be abolitionist teachers. Yes, I know, you know, you're going into your first year of teaching, 
but there are still little acts of resistance that you can take. Yes, they're going to give you this prescribed curriculum. Okay, so how can you make space for them to learn about black joy? How can you make space for to learn about different narratives than just whitewashed history? How can you make space? How can you introduce them to new people who that who they won't encounter in their communities? And I was like, I don't know. It's like, you know, okay, teach the curriculum. And at the same time, give these kids what they need. Because I know it's like, I, it's just, I'm not saying walk into your school. All right, we about to be anti-racist up in here, okay? We about to learn all this. We about to change this. We about to abolish this whole system. Yes, you can do that. But once again, the classroom is your, you can build that safe identity space for your students. You can disrupt the curriculum in your classroom. You can make sure that they have the tools that they need. You can put more black people in the literature, you know, introduce them to more indigenous writers, more Latinx writers, people who look like them, queer writers, instead of just the same Eurocentric whitewashed curriculum that we get. That's another way to be a disruptor. So we're obviously heading into a very much in, I guess, an uncharted year. What advice do you have for educators who are trying to navigate the really choppy waters? You know, one of my concerns is this. You know, we we start out talking about, you know, okay, Black Lives Matter and, uh, you know, the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others. And, And I actually see this movement this time being very different, even though the media is no longer showing the protests, the protests are continuing. I'm I'm seeing, you know, like change that people have been talking about for, you know, for decades that, you know, maybe even the Washington football team will no longer be the name that they've had and have resisted changing for so long. But what my concern is, is for teachers, black teachers, black and brown teachers going into districts where, you know, they are are in, in the minority, like there aren't many of them and that schools, whether it's administrators or other teachers, will put the burden on them to explain blackness or to explain what it's like to be, you know, you know, black and brown person. How can we be more sensitive and how can we be more culturally, you know, whether you're using relevant, responsive, sustaining, whatever. I think that burden, and I'm kind of seeing it already in, in some other spaces where you have people turning to these, these, these black researchers all of a sudden or these black individuals and saying, tell me more, teach me more. And I think that can somewhat be a little bit insulting <laughs> to, and it can be a burden on that person to now suddenly teach the world. And so that's, that's my concern is for black and brown teachers, whether they're new or returning or veterans going into the field is they have to protect their knowledge in a sense, and not be used to do that work. Because I think it's going to take all of us to do that work. And that means if I'm not a person who is culturally aware, yes, I'm not saying don't turn to a black and brown person to seek guidance, but you, they can't pull the, 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 the wagon by themselves. People are going to have to study on their own. And so I would just encourage those young teachers or those veteran teachers who are, who may even be asked right now to do certain things 
that they protect their knowledge and they protect the, their their uh you know make sure they're taking care of themselves and 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 not being used. I think that's the word I'm I'm, I'm hoping that comes across mm-hmm. is that people are using them for their black experience, for their brown experience, and just to I guess I, I don't want to say it's performative, but I don't I don't I think that's going to be too much of a burden on those teachers when they have all these other things to to deal with that now they got to teach their coworkers <laughs> you know mm-hmm. or they you know and and uh, I I I think it is going to have to be authentic I think you know for non-black teachers and non-brown teachers that if they're really truly interested in the work of social justice if they're really interested in you know really believing that black lives matter that a lot of that work it's going to have to be on them as well. They're going to have to do it on their own, some of it on their own, and seek support or seek advice rather than saying, "Okay, you teach me now." That that's what my my advice would be. If we're if we're really going to try to make this sustainable, it can't be performative. It can't be surface. It has to be deep, sincere work from everybody 100 percent, exactly you know the teaching force is 80 percent non-black and so it's 80 percent you know white people and it's it's interesting and like marquita said continue to do the work to unpack your biases who are the students that i'm teaching what am i teaching them how can i recognize the movement in an authentic way that affirms that Black Lives Matter and that we as a society, as a community, need to do more to disrupt this harmful system. And also, especially if you know you are white teachers teaching black and brown babies, please don't be performative. Like like you keep saying, they all kids know when you're real or not. They can spot they can spot real people, they can spot fake people. And you know, remember your kids, everybody's going through a pandemic right now. And the main focus, it should be, how can I build up my students? What can we do to build community? What can I do to help my students, their parents? Because there's so many different dynamics. Are we in person? Are we virtual? What's going on? What's happening? So be ready for everything, but also unpack your teaching identity, unpack your biases. Where are you causing harm? How can you introduce more joy to the classroom people and to students that they don't know about? And, you know, please be gentle with your students. You know, they're just kids. Humanize them. Don't, don't have these unrealistic expectations in a pandemic, outside of a pandemic. When you, you both mentioned avoiding being performative about this work, could you, could you tell us what, what you mean by that? And I think you both ex- gave good examples of the counter about being authentic, making this real. How, how do we ensure teachers are not just performing, you know, as, as if it's for an audience? Well, let, let me, um, <laughs> because I talk a little bit about this and my chair told me, uh, maybe hold off on to that to another article. Uh, <laughs> but I, when I when I think of, for example, uh, anything culturally, so when you say culturally relevant, culturally responsive, culturally sustaining, when that push went into schools, okay, it, it caught on. It was like a trend. It was like everybody, it was a buzzword. It was another one of those buzzwords. 
And so it seemed as though if people said they were culturally relevant, responsive, sustaining in their instruction, then that meant that they were really doing this deep work, right? But it was performative. It was on the surface. And so you could, like Janelle said, you can easily tell the level of knowledge that the teacher or the school or, you know, the learning environment or the learning organization, how much they had actually invested in understanding the culture of the children that they were teaching. So I like to say that sometimes schools cherry pick the part of the culture that they can use, that they can show that it looks like they're doing the work. And so you might have a school that says, okay, we're going to recognize Black History Month. And they put on these performances or they have a quote of the day or a person of the week, but that's performative. It goes nowhere beyond that. You can buy literature uh, because the person who wrote it is Black, Brown, Latinx, queer. You can do all of that, but you're just buying it. If the teachers, the schools, don't look at the entire curriculum, okay, and, and recognize the violence and the anti-blackness and anti-brownness and anti-everything within that curriculum, then it's all performative. It's all for show. And so that's what I, what I mean when I say it's performative. It's not real. It looks like on the surface that we're doing this work. But if you peel back like an onion, you start peeling back those layers, you see nothing has really changed. It's just just on the surface. It reminds me of the critiques, right? Multicultural education was the big thing in schools, too, that was a lot of people have criticized as it's really been diluted and performative. And and we talk a lot about social studies in here, and so a lot of times that's adding in a person, you know, a black person to history as if you've changed the narrative. But then you get to the Constitution, and you do not talk about the Constitution as an anti-black white supremacist structure where it's built in through the three-fifths compromise and the fugitive slave clause. Um, If you do not address that with your students and you pretend that the Constitution is a document of freedom, which it is not, you know, in any way, shape, or form, it guaranteed uh, a governmental system that benefited some and and oppressed others. So, Marquita Foster and Danella Denegy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. So where can our listeners find more of your work online? Well, I I wrote down my handy dandy notes here to make sure I didn't forget anything. But I I have I've been, you know, fortunate as a a doc student to have really great uh, professors who either sent links to me for proposals or they've written with me. So I I have a a few publications already. I just was recently... Mm -hmm. Published in Bank Street, uh, occasional series where I wrote about the trauma caused in elementary by these practices of testing on elementary uh, kids as young as four and called looking for trouble and causing trauma. I have worked in educational, uh, education science, English journal, which is probably the one that I'm probably uh, most known for. It's even Cinderella is white where we talk about the lack of black girls represented in uh, fairy tales or literature and how we can use counter narratives to tell their stories. 
I've been published in the Journal of Ethical Educational Leadership and uh, Middle Grades Review. I also have a video on the uh, National Council of Teachers of English, the Marginal Syllabus uh, website, where I talk about uh, the use of uh, counter narratives or counter uh, fairy tales to tell the stories of black children or black girls. That is fantastic. And we are going to get each one of those in our show notes so that you can go and explore those more for real. I mean, those are some touch on so many of the things we just talked about. So it's an extended syllabus for, you know, this discussion. Thank you. Uh, As a first year doc student, I am limited, but they're coming. (laughs) They are coming. They are coming. We're working on one together. Exactly. They're coming. I am presenting at a conference, teaching Black History Conference, that's taking place at the end of this month. My session is titled Inserting Inserting Black Queer Women in History. So uh, I'll send you a link that information. I know, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, that's, you can find me on Twitter, identity <laughs> underscore X, documenting my doctoral journey. But the publications are coming. And cool. like I said, my research focuses on pre service queer, black queer teachers. So I'm excited because that research is very limited. Well, I will be at your session at the Carter Black History Conference, which is focusing on her stories, right? And that is, you can still, mm-hmm. it's really cool opportunity. We people, you know, you can, I've wanted to go to it. It's the third year they've had it. It's out of the University of Missouri with our former guest, LeGarrett uh, King, yeah. and mm-hmm. is one of the leaders of it. And so uh, if you, anyone listening, it's it's in late in July. And so uh, you can still go to that. And I'm going to go to your session. I can't wait. Yay, I'm excited. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll continue the conversation online and in other spaces. Now, at the Vision of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, and really, you do, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on the Facebook and a few other places. And of course, if you haven't already, and really, come on, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and really anywhere you'd like us to be. And if you read us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And we would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42ThinkDeep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off. It's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference. It's kind of silly.